Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. I want to say good morning to you. Uh, today, this week, we're going to be talking about uh, tax collectors, and, and it falls uh, into our series that we are in, in the book of, uh, in the Gospels. And we're actually going to be tracing through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, specifically looking at some of the major points in Jesus' ministry in which he reached out to those around him in order to change their circumstances, in order to change their lives by ultimately giving of himself to them. And so we want to uh, focus on Jesus because we as a church focus on Jesus. Uh, without Jesus, none of this would be possible. Without Jesus and the fact that, that as we see in these arrows, and these arrows um, each represent something specific, we, we see the fact that because we are sinners, we are broken, we are in need of a Savior, Jesus comes down to earth in order to do what we could not do ourselves. Um, so he comes down, he leaves his culture of heaven in order to enter into our culture of earth. He leaves the presence in, of angels in order to enter into the presence of sinners. He comes to us to pursue us. And then he comes alongside of us. He comes and ministers to each one of us to provide for us what we cannot provide for ourselves. Um, and then or, ultimately the way in which he does that is by subtracting our sins from us, by taking away our sins by his death and sacrifice on the cross. Um, he takes that, he removes the sins from us uh, because we are sinners. We are extraordinary sinners in need of an extraordinary Savior. And then in the end, uh, as we'll see at the towards the end of the Gospels, the fact that he resurrects, he comes back triumphing over death, sin, and evil, and then ascending back into heaven to his rightful position on the throne um, in heaven. And so we're going to be looking at this through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And again, the major stories that show why Jesus did what he did, who he is, who he says he is, and what are those implications for us, both individually as well as us corporately as a church. What does the fact that Jesus came down, ministered to us, took our sins away, and then went back to heaven, what does that mean for the district church in the greater context of Indianapolis? What does that look like? What does that do in compelling and propelling us forward in order to do the same, to pursue others as Christ has pursued us, to then come alongside them and minister to them in their lives as we invest in their life, as we share life and the gospel with each other? As we then see the gospel remove their sins, their guilt, their shame, whatever it is that they're longing for, that they're looking for, that they're placing their hope in, we see the gospel remove that. And then ultimately we get to tell them that the gospel provides for us eternal hope in the fact that we too will be resurrected with Jesus. Uh, we will be brought into a glorified state in which we will reign and rule with him for millennia and millennia upon history and, 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 and eternity forward. And so this is the message that we proclaim, but the beauty is, is that message a lot of times can be seen as something large or something vast. It can be seen as we want to come in and change the city. 
We want to come in and see the gospel transform and renew lives. We want to see the district church literally see thousands upon thousands of people get saved in the history of the district church moving forward. What's it going to look like 40 years from now, 60 years from now, 100 years from now? What's our community going to look like 60 years from now? It's easy for us to think about those things, but what we need to do and focus on is what does that look like day today? What does that look like tomorrow for us? What does that look like next week for us? What does that look like this afternoon for us? What are those implications? And so that's why we're tracing through the life of Jesus and specifically um, the things that he did in order to see the gospel move forward, in order to see the kingdom of God that he brought to the earth to see it advance in the hearts and minds of those who were around him. And so today we're going to be looking at this story of Jesus and a tax collector. And we're kind of using this one. Um, we're going to be looking at a specific story, the story of Zacchaeus. But we're also going to be referencing the fact that, that the New Testament uses the phrase tax collectors quite often. Um, it refers to them in a lot of different ways. And so we're kind of in, in, in capturing all of the aspects of what it means that Jesus came and pursued tax collectors, um, specifically in the New Testament, and how that has implications for us today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Luke chapter 19 is where we are going to be. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one around you. Um, please grab that one. Uh, I, I say this every single week. Grab your Bibles, open them up. If you have a paper Bible, open it up. If you have a tablet or a phone, scroll to wherever your Bible is. Uh, I want to see that glory radiance on your face. I can see it on Josh's back there. <laughs> like just the, it, it's it's just showing what who who God is. Um, but also the reason why we take you to Scripture. Every single week is because we elevate scripture. We hold it high in regard. We, we see it as the authoritative word of God. And, and the reason why I point that out is because I want you to see it for yourselves not the fact that we're just coming up here and making up stories. Not the fact that we're coming up here and just creating our own opinions and, and our own ideas about, hey, I think this would be, gr be great in order to motivate people to love one another outside of this church. No, I want you to see that we are just messengers passing on a message that, has, that is 2,000 years old. I want you to see in Scripture that this is something that we live by, that we, that we are fueled by, and that ultimately we are compelled by to live. And so this isn't something that, that Jeremy, Josh, and myself just sit around a table and say, hey, well, what kind of story can we create this week that's going to help people get motivated to do something great? Um, no, this is us getting around a table and saying, what has Jesus done and what does that do in our lives? What does that mean for us? And so we always go to Scripture because we want you to see that. And so the Bible talks a lot about tax collectors and just listen to some of these references. Don't, don't try and do, especially if you have a church background, I'm not asking you to do Bible drill right now. I'm not asking you to try to follow along with me every single one of these. So just sit, relax, and just listen to some of these scenarios in Scripture from tax collectors. In Matthew chapter 10, we see that one of the 12 disciples is a tax collector named Matthew. In Luke 18, we see two men praying, one a self-righteous Pharisee and the other a humble tax collector. In Luke 19, we see a young man named Zacchaeus who is a tax collector and made his wealth on overtaxing the people and therefore was hated by them. 
In Luke chapter 5, we see Jesus approach the booth of a tax collector named Levi, and Jesus goes and dines with him in his home. In Matthew 18, we see that unrepentant church members are to be viewed as similar to the wretched and evil tax collectors in their city. In Luke 15, we see that tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to Jesus. In Luke 3, tax collectors were being baptized and asking Jesus, what shall we do? In Mark chapter 2, the scribes and Pharisees grumble and judge Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners. It says in Luke 7, the Son of Man is accused of what we talked about last week. It says, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So there are a lot of references of tax collectors throughout the Gospels. Almost every time the term tax collector is used as a derogatory term towards somebody specifically, and it's synonymous with sinner. Even Jesus uses it as a derogatory term um, when referencing in Matthew 18, when talking about church discipline, when talking about um, how we as, as leadership, how we as the church are to interact with people who are persistently unrepentant and divisive within the church. It says in Matthew 18, If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. AKA, he's saying, treat this individual as though they are a sinner and not inheriting the kingdom of God. In all the texts about tax collectors, I want to spend the most time in, in Luke chapter 19 with the story of Zacchaeus. And I want to give you a little bit of context leading up to that story. Luke 19 begins with, with this famous story that you've probably heard um, if you've been around church or if you have a church background uh, about this, this guy named Zacchaeus. And, and probably for some of you, um, you might remember an old Sunday school song that's about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. Um, he climbed up the sycamore tree and you, you know the song. Um, but anyways... I, it's interesting because Zacchaeus, as many of us know, is a tax collector. And in the nation of Israel, um, this was a really disliked position. Um, and, and in a lot of ways was kind of a, a divided position amongst people within this, this culture, this nation. Uh, because a tax collector, you were, you were divided in your interest. And so you were a Jewish citizen who loved the nation of Israel, but you worked for Rome, uh, the Roman Empire who was oppressing Israel at the same time. And so you were divided in your interests. On top of that, most tax collectors in Israel were scandalous. Um, they were swindlers who would actually cheat people out of their money um, by having to pay more taxes. And Zacchaeus is one of these guys who, who is um, living in the nation of Israel, however, is working for Rome. And so Rome is having him tax the nation of Israel high in taxes to pay to Rome. But then in order for him to make extra money, he would then tax the people above and beyond, taxing his own people above and beyond to make his own wealth um, in his own name. And so we see this story um, and we see this guy Zacchaeus really as being someone who, um, who's out for his own gain. He, he's selfish. Uh, he's taxing his own people in order to make a life for himself. And we see this interesting thing that happens um, where Zacchaeus' heart begins to shift when Jesus comes into this story. And so Zacchaeus, we know because he is in Israel, we know that he had no doubt had heard some of Jesus' teachings. He had no doubt heard of the miracles Jesus was performing, and he had no doubt 
heard about the kinds of people Jesus was spending time with, lowly people whom Jesus was extending much grace and mercy to in a place where nobody else would. And so something began to shift in his heart. So as Jesus begins to enter into Jericho, the city of Jericho, he's coming through. Zacchaeus hears that he's coming, and Zacchaeus wants to get a glimpse of Jesus. But we know because he's a short little man that he has to do the only thing that he could do, and that's climb up a little sycamore tree so that he can get an advantage point of Jesus. And this is where I want to enter into the story and read it um, from the Scriptures. Luke chapter 19, picking it up in verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when when they saw it, they all grumbled, He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner." And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. A question I've always thought about when when reading this story is, Why does Zacchaeus want to see Jesus? It says he's a chief tax collector. And so we know from that 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 he's got some prominence in his career. That He's got some power there. He's a chief tax collector. He's got some people underneath him. It says he's rich. So he has some materialism going on. He has a wealth of, of possessions. He's, when, when it comes to, to needing stuff, he's without need. He's got plenty of things for himself. He's rich. It says also that, that he is able to climb a tree. And so just based on the fact that he's able to climb a tree, we know that he's got some health to himself. Like he, he's not disabled by any means. He's able to climb a tree. And so if he's got health and wealth and we could say prosperity, why then is he seeking to see Jesus? Let me give some, some conjecture here. And I don't think it's far-fetched based on the facts that we have here. I think... Zacchaeus' health, wealth, and prosperity isn't living up to the hype. I think all the things that he's, that he's brought into his life, that he's brought into his own possessions, his own wealth, is falling short in what he's ultimately wanting in life. And I don't think it's coincidence here that this chapter follows the chapter of the rich young ruler. This chapter, this story of Jesus entering into Jericho, Jesus just left the part of the city in which he interacted with a rich young ruler who came to Jesus looking for more than what he had. And the rich young ruler comes in and asks Jesus simply, I I want eternal life, so what must I do? And Jesus says, me, 
You have to follow me. You have to sell all your possessions. You have to sell all your wealth, give it to the poor and follow me. What you're looking for is satisfaction and you're not going to find it in your wealth. You're going to find it in me. And the rich young ruler walks away sad because he had great wealth. He walks away sad because what he's still hoping in is that his wealth is going to live up to the hype. He's still hoping in the fact that his possessions one day are going to ultimately bring him the satisfaction that he needs. And then we move into the story of Zacchaeus, who is a wealthy man himself, who has prominence in his career, who has who has health as well when it comes to being able to climb a sycamore tree. And he's looking, he's seeking for Jesus. And I believe he's seeking for Jesus because everything that he has is not enough. What he's found is that these, these, these promises of the pursuit of happiness, these, these promises that as long as you gain things, that you'll find satisfaction in those things. And, and what I believe Zacchaeus is finding here is that that stuff is not enough. What it's promising to satisfy is actually proving to be temporary satisfaction. Not jumping into it ahead, but next week we're going to be talking about a Um, a story of a woman at the well who we see this same thing play out where where she asked Jesus that they're having a conversation about the water in the well and Jesus says why are you asking for something that's temporary when I can give you something that's eternal and we're seeing the same thing play out here where they're placing hope in a temporary God they're placing hope in health wealth and prosperity in order to satisfy the soul and when it doesn't it leaves you seeking for more it leaves you longing for more. And I'll be honest, I, I don't think we are that different from Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler, especially for the fact that we live in America. Take New Year's resolutions. We're about six or seven weeks into uh, the new year right now, which is probably about the time that everyone's pretty much ended their resolutions. Uh, they're starting to fall off at this point. But just take the, the top 10 New Year's resolutions over this last year that, that people mentioned. Listen to what America put for, their, for their, this past year. Number 10 is spend more time with family. That's a good one. Number nine, I love this one, was to fall in love. Um, I, I didn't realize that you could actually will yourself into that one. Like 2017 is the year. I'm going to make someone fall in love with me. Um, number eight was help others. That's great. Seven is quit smoking. Um, that's good for your life and for your health. Uh, six is learn something exciting. That sounds fun. Number five, stay fit and healthy. Good luck with that one. Uh, Number four, enjoy your life to the fullest. Only an American would say that. Um, The next one is, uh, oh, where'd it go? Five, stay fit and healthy. Enjoy the life to the fullest. Number four is, um, I'm sorry, number three, spend less and save more. That's good. Number two, get organized. And number one, what do you think it was? Number one. Lose weight, exactly. It's interesting because here's what's so funny about America. If we were to flip that on the backside, what does that tell you about Americans? We're unhealthy, materialistic, we're disorganized, uneducated, selfish, lonely, and living in broken homes and cannot keep commitments. That's what New Year's resolutions are revealing about America. What it's ultimately saying is that the pursuit of health, wealth, and prosperity doesn't 
doesn't ultimately end up living up to the hype of what we're hoping that it does. And even though Zacchaeus has health, wealth, and prosperity, he's wanting more. He's wanting to live life to the fullest because something's missing. What we see in this story of Zacchaeus the tax collector is Jesus comes in and ultimately pursues him. He comes in and helps him, not by giving him more health, wealth, and prosperity, but by giving what Zacchaeus needs to be able to find his satisfaction. Jesus gives Zacchaeus himself. We see in verse 6 that Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received what? Received what? Received him joyfully. Zacchaeus received Jesus joyfully. That word joyfully is kairo in the Greek and it's used 75 times in 68 different verses throughout the New Testament and it means to rejoice exceedingly. Zacchaeus is now experiencing something that he's never experienced in his health, wealth, and prosperity. He's experiencing a rejoicing exceedingly. What it means to rejoice versus what it means to be happy is that you are now finding satisfaction despite your circumstances. You're finding satisfaction despite how much you have or how much you don't have. He's now rejoicing overwhelmingly because he's experiencing um, uh, having something that provides all my needs, my desires, my affections, my wants that I did not once have. Zacchaeus is experiencing this. It's, it's used throughout the scriptures to express what happens to us, to a person when we experience the, the salvific work of Jesus Christ himself. When we receive salvation, we receive joy to the fullest that the world can never offer us. We, we experience a, a satisfaction that we will never find in anything that is a possession except for Christ himself. Jesus is saying is, what you have is not enough. You need me. You need me. Jesus is offering himself as the only thing to satisfy that gnawing in our souls. And to be honest with you guys, this is the one thing that we could go into any culture, into any context, into any ethnic background, into any city, whether it's in America or whether it's in any country. This is the one thing that transcends all cultures. Every single person who is alive has a gnawing in their souls for satisfaction. They're longing for something to make them feel good, to make them feel satisfied, to make them feel like, like there's not something missing anymore. And what Jesus is coming into the story and saying is, I'm the only thing that can ultimately satisfy you. Out of all the resolutions, out of all the things our lives can be committed to, What's the thing that is meant to be the main thing? And the one thing that changed for Zacchaeus was, was the object of his affections. At first, he was once selfishly pursued satisfaction and wealth and prosperity at the expense of others and found it to be lacking in joy. Now, he selflessly pursues Jesus for satisfaction and at his own expense provides generosity to others. As it says in verse 8, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Jesus says that salvation has come to the house of Zacchaeus. 
It didn't come because of Zacchaeus' generosity to others. Like a lot of people would look at this story and say, well, because Zacchaeus is now giving of his wealth to the poor, those that he robbed, he's not only restoring them, but he's restoring them fourfold. He's giving them above and beyond what he took from them. Jesus is saying it wasn't because of those things that salvation came to his house, but because salvation came to his house, those things are the evidence that Jesus changed his heart and his mind. Jesus is not coming in here and telling us that you need to do in order to receive me. He's saying because you have received me, it's going to move to you doing. It's going to move to you leading a life or living a life of generosity to others. Living a life of sacrifice. Of, of, of Basically because Jesus is everything, I now need nothing. Because in Jesus, I have everything I need. I'm now free to give away everything that I have because I find satisfaction in Jesus and Jesus alone. This is what's happening to Zacchaeus is he's basically saying everything that I was placing hope in, I'm now free from it. So whether it was health, whether it was prosperity, whether it was wealth, whether it was being a chief tax collector, whether it was being a boss, whatever it was that I was placing my hope in for satisfaction, I'm now free from those things because I'm placing my hope and satisfaction in Christ alone. Jesus is giving me, providing for me everything that my mind is looking for, everything that my heart is longing for, everything that my soul is gnawing for. I'm finding it in Jesus alone. And guys, that message transcends every culture that we interact with because everybody's looking for something. Zacchaeus is a seeker. Guess what? Everyone's a seeker because we were designed that way. We were designed by God to to, to ascribe worship to something. Therefore, we're looking for something to give our worship to. When we're not in a relationship with Jesus, we're looking to everything else in order to, to worship it. We're looking for sex to worship it. We're looking for alcohol to worship it. We're looking for relationships in order to worship them. We're looking for entertainment in order to worship it. We're looking for something to give our worship to, to say you are good and you provide for me the satisfaction that I'm looking for, that I'm longing for. And every single time, creation will crumble under the weight of our expectation of it to satisfy us. Like, you understand that? That's what Romans chapter 1 is all about when God says that you, have cre- that you have worshiped creation rather than creator. And when you worship creation over creator, creation will fall every single time. Just ask your spouse. When you expect your spouse to provide for you the satisfaction that only Jesus can provide, ask them how it makes them feel. They're going to be walking on eggshells all the time because they feel like they need to give you what only Jesus can give you. But when you expect it only from Jesus and not from them, all of a sudden now they're free to be able to be the person God's created them to be, to be able to love you and pursue you and care for you in a way that's not going to be out of expectation, but rather that is out of freedom. Jesus didn't come into the story of Zacchaeus and expect him to give everything that he took from people back. 
that came out of the freedom of experiencing a life with Jesus. That came out of the, the, the evidence that Jesus has come in and has changed my life so much that I don't want to take from people, but rather I want to give to people. And the beautiful thing of that is Zacchaeus didn't do it begrudgingly. Like the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler saw it as, as a, 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 a stumbling block for him. I got to give away all my wealth in order to follow you? I just don't know that I can do that. Because he so loved his wealth. But Zacchaeus now is entering into a relationship with Jesus that he so loves Jesus and receiving him joyfully that he couldn't care less about his wealth. He says, get half of my goods, give it to the poor. Anything that I've defrauded other people, give it to them fourfold. Go and above and beyond. I, I want to be removed from the things that I trusted in and the way people saw me. Those things, him defrauding people, is what made people view him as a sinner. It's what makes all tax, tax collectors viewed as a sinner is the fact that in order for them to gain wealth has to come by robbing people. And he's saying, I do not want to be associated with that any longer. I want to be associated with you. And if generosity is what that is, then I want to live that out. And so now people are viewing him as being a generous person, giving above and beyond. And guess what? That's going to create within the community a stirring up of the people around him to say, what happened to Zacchaeus? Every year, it's tax season, right? Every year, tax season rolls around. Zacchaeus is going to rob me again. But now he's coming in saying, oh, you're supposed to owe. I'm going to give you fourfold. I'm going to give you back four times the amount of what you actually owe me. Zacchaeus, what happened? Like, did you hit your head? Are you sick? Are you feeling all right? Like, like what's different about you? What's going on in your life? And it's an opportunity for Zacchaeus to say, Jesus, Jesus is what happened. I didn't just wake up one day and all of a sudden feel like, man, I really feel bad about everything I've been doing to everybody. No, Jesus came into my life and this is how he's transformed me. This is what he's done in my life. Jesus says that the salvation has come to this house John Piper has a famous quote, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. The realization is that we are all looking for satisfaction. Every single person, sinner, saint, we're looking for satisfaction. It's just whether or not we're looking for it from the Creator or from creation. God's most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him, when we are pursuing Him to satisfy us, when we are pursuing Him for that gratification that we so long for, that we so need, we're, we're pursuing Him for the acceptance of you are my child in whom I've adopted. You are my child in whom I brought into the family of God, the church of God. You, I have brought you into a community of brothers and sisters who are marked under the banner of the gospel, the good news that no longer are you sinners, but I have made you saints. 
We long for that. And Jesus is saying, this is what I have brought you into. And God is glorified when we understand that because what happens when we experience joy, when we experience satisfaction, is we express it. So God is most glorified when his people are receiving his love and his grace and his mercy and his joy. And the only way that we receive that is by receiving the gospel, by receiving the good news of Jesus coming down, of him ministering to us, him taking away our sins, and then resurrecting to a glorified state. Us receiving that message and believing it with our hearts and our minds, and seeing that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's done what he says he's done, by believing that we begin receiving the ultimate satisfaction that we are meant and designed to receive. But in that, the object of our affections changes. No longer are we pursuing the objects of creation for, or to worship them. No longer am I saying that I have the greatest wife in the world and because I have the greatest wife, she has to remain the greatest wife because I'm expecting her to be the greatest wife. No, now it moves to I have the greatest wife in the world because God has created her and has designed her. She's a beautiful helper for me. She, she encourages me. She loves me. But all of that identity that is hers comes from God because God designed her that way. Because God is awesome. Because God pursues her and is changing her heart. And in that, I am a beneficiary of the love that is being changed in her as well. And so now I'm able to worship God because of my relationship with my spouse rather than trying to worship my spouse because of who she is or who she isn't. Last night, we, we had a great dinner at this place called Eagle's Nest downtown where it's revolving. Anyways, it's on top of a, a building. And uh, I, I, I love salmon. I, I tore into that salmon and ate it, and it was fantastic. If I did not know Jesus, I would be worshiping that salmon. But the reality is, is about 30 minutes after eating the salmon, I would be thinking, I'm now left wanting more. I want that flavor again. I'm missing out now on, on that experience of enjoying the taste of that salmon. Knowing Jesus, as I'm partaking of the salmon, telling Kelsey, isn't it amazing that God created salmon? Not only that, but created salmon for us to be able to catch. And if you love animals, I'm sorry, but to, for us to kill those things and to throw them on a grill and, and for that flavor to come out and for me to be able to enjoy it. Like God is good because of what he's created. And so I get to look back on it now and say, God, you created salmon. That's amazing. I'm still excited. I'm still express I'm still enjoying his creation, but ultimately giving him the credit for something that I'm enjoying. God is ferociously in pursuit of our satisfaction by giving us gifts to be able to enjoy and steward. After we left the, the Eagle's Nest, we went to Sub-Zero because we like ice cream, even though it's February, and we waited outside in a line for an hour long because we wanted Sub-Zero ice cream. And if you haven't been to Sub-Zero, you need to go. They make the ice cream in front of you with liquid nitrogen. It's fantastic. But while we were in line, God's providence is beautiful. The people who were in front of us, uh, they, they were, so we, this is right when we got into line. 
Uh, we could tell that they were out of towners uh, because they were just asking a lot of questions. Do you think they have this or do you think they have this? And we're not quite sure. Should we wait in this line? Is it worth it to wait in this line? And so Kelsey, I think one of the questions they had was, do you think they serve uh, Heath bars as a topping? And, and Kelsey said, yes, they serve Heath bars as a topping. She's kind of entered into the conversation with them. Um, and so then they kind of turned around and because we knew that they were um, out of towners, we asked, where, where are you out of town from? And they said, deep South Texas um, in the Corpus Christi area. And uh, we said, well, what, what brings you into Indianapolis? And they said, we're, we're here for a biblical counseling conference up in the Lafayette area. Uh, we said, oh, that's awesome. Uh, and, and so then we said, well, you know, what's the conference? Of, is it affiliated with anybody? And said, it's, it's affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention, a part of the North American Mission Board. It's a conference they do for biblical counselors. And I said, I'm a NAM church planner. Um, I was like, this is awesome. And so then we started going back and forth, talking about, I mean, they had all kinds of questions on what church planting looks like within the city. What, what does the NAM resources look like for that? And then by the end of the conversation, this pastor literally, he was like, I want to give you a subscription to Right Now Media, which is like an online resourcing tool that provides videos, that provides documents, that provides small group curriculums. It's all kinds of things. He said, we, we bought it for our church, but we bought it in order for us to, to be able to add other accounts just in case I were to ever to meet someone who needed another account. And so he said, I'm gonna, as soon as I get back to the hotel, I'm going to send you the invite for that. You have all access. He's like, as long as we're continuing to pay for it, you have access to it. Um, I said, that is phenomenal. And then he said, I want to get you connected with our associational leader down in South Texas. They're looking for ways to partner with church planters and see what that looks like in other cities. Is it okay if I give you his contact information? And I said, yes, absolutely. Give him my contact information. I would love to be able to connect with them. Um, and they said, well, you know, are there any other conferences that you go to? And I said, in, in May, I'm going to be traveling to Dallas to the Send Conference. And they said, we're going to the Send Conference. And so we're scheduling a time to get together with them while we're there. And all this because God created ice cream and the flavor of ice cream places us in a position in order for us to have this new relationship with them. Like God is good. And he is working out all things for the good of his people that are called to love him and to find satisfaction in him and him alone. And this is what we see. We see that every single one of us are like Zacchaeus in the sense that we're wandering around in the domain of darkness looking for something to satisfy us, but we can't see what it is because we're in a domain of darkness. When we got here this morning, the, the lights were not on, but the door was open. And so we came into the theater trying to bring all the stuff in, even though it was pitch dark and we're stumbling, we're hitting things like this is this is what it's like to be in the domain of darkness. Is that we're looking for it, but we don't know where to find it. And God pursues us, as he says in Colossians 1, that he comes to the domain of darkness in order to transfer us to the kingdom of his beloved son. But here's the beauty of what happens in this story is that he doesn't completely remove us from the domain of darkness yet. It says in verse 7, when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. More than likely, this was the scribes and the Pharisees here grumbling that he's gone into talking about Jesus, that he's gone into the domain of darkness and has become like them. 
This is what they're grumbling at him. We saw that in Luke chapter 7, verse 34. The Son of Man has gone in to eat and drink, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is going in to be with sinners, and I can just see people, I could just see religious people sitting back saying, who does Jesus think he is? The nerve he has to go in and, and party with sinners. The nerve that he has to be able to go in to uh, an area in which he's going to be guilty by association. We're not supposed to associate with sinners. We're, we're supposed to stay away from sinners. The more we interact with sinners, the more that their sin's going to jump on us and pollute us and, and, and distort our, our view of, of the gospel and distort the gospel. This is why, and I'm not knocking the suburbs. I love suburbs. I spent the majority of my life in suburbs. But the reality is suburbs were created to escape the realities of the cities. They were, they, they were created to, to, to ultimately be a safe place to raise a family because we don't want the sin of the city to jump on our kids. And the reality is the suburbs are no different than the city. It's just the sin looks different. Just as many sinners in the suburbs as there are in the city. It's just one looks a little cleaner than the other. And so the reality is, is Jesus hasn't removed himself from the domain of darkness, but actually pursues himself deeper into it. To seek and to save that which is lost, as he says at the end of this passage. Where are the lost? They're not in the kingdom of the beloved son. Jesus isn't just meant to, to stay in the clean, cleanliness of, of, of the, the church, but rather is, is, is meant to pursue, to get out into the world. It says that he transfers from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son, but scripture also talks about the fact that, that we are to not be of the world, but be in the world. So he res rescues us from the world to send us back into the world. Does that make sense? Like a lot of times we feel like when we become believers, that we have to leave lifestyle, that we have to leave everything that we've been partnered with or that we've been connected with or the friend groups that we're in. Um, and, and yes, there are certain, there are sins that we need to walk away from. Zacchaeus walked away from robbing people of their money in order to gain wealth for himself. He walked away from that lifestyle. But what does it say? What, what was Jesus um, accused of here? eating and dining with tax collectors. What that meant was Zacchaeus started a small group in his house and invited all of his tax collecting buddies over to it and said, you've got to meet Jesus. Same thing happened for Levi, who was a tax collector sitting in his booth and Jesus comes up to him while he's at work and says, this isn't going to work out for you, bud. You need to follow me. And so let's leave this lifestyle. I want you to come and follow me. And what happens is he then goes into Levi's home and Levi invites all of his tax collecting buddies over. Jesus is dining with sinners. He's engaged. He's pursuing those who need him. In other stories, he says, the doctor has not come for the healthy, but for the sick. What Jesus is ultimately saying here and what he's being accused of is I'm right where I need to be. I'm right where I need to be. Guys, for me, and this is 
this is hard to say because I even know within my own mind and with my own heart this is aspects that I that I war with within myself and so what I'm about to say I'm saying this as one of you as well is that clean Christianity is appealing clean Christianity is is desirable and what I mean by that is I would love for Christianity to be legal worldwide. I would love for abortion to become illegal worldwide. I would love for the oppression of the church and for the persecution of the church to cease worldwide. I would love for it to be easy for us to walk out into the culture around us and to preach and proclaim Jesus and for everyone to just say, oh, that sounds great. It may not be for me, but that just sounds great. That's something that I think you should pursue and that you should keep going with, and that's, that's beautiful. But that's not the reality. What I'm tired of, even though I want those things, what I'm tired of is safe Christianity. I'm tired and fed up with clean Christianity. I want maturity and I want holiness within our churches. I want the pursuit of those things. But I'm tired of it looking clean. I'm tired of it looking like everyone who comes into the church has it all together. Because we don't. We don't have it together. When we say we have it together, we're lying to ourselves and we're robbing one another of the opportunity to to encourage and pour the gospel into each other to see our joy complete. I think what we need is to be accused. I think what we need is for the religious people outside of us to look at the district church and say, are they a church? Because I saw them hanging out in bars. I I saw them, and, and this is just... This isn't a part of vision or anything like that, but I saw them have a ministry with strip clubs. Are, are they sure they're a church? Have they watered down the gospel? or What are they doing there? Because they're attracting all kinds of messy and sinners and people that, that are making them look like they're not a holy and perfect and righteous church. Although I want that for the sake of Christ to look good, what I think makes Jesus look better in our society is when we see sinners become saints. Not religious people become saints, although I believe religious people need to become saints just as much. But the reality is, is we are here. If we're going to follow Jesus' example and we are going to be sent into the domain of darkness, into the world to share the message of the gospel, then I think and believe that that is going to push us into situations that are going to make us uncomfortable, but not only make us uncomfortable, but are going to make other people question the motives of our church. One of the greatest 
probably one of the best experiences I've had thus far as a pastor is when we were in South Florida and we were in relationship with a guy who was a professing atheist who came to know Christ and in coming to know Christ all of a sudden began asking questions and warring within his soul hey I sleep with my girlfriend that used to not be a problem now I'm convicted by it what's going on in my heart these are the questions he's asking us in Bible study and times with, with guys as we're getting around and we're discipling one another. He's saying, this, this used to not be an issue for me. Now it's an issue for me. What's going on? That's beautiful to me. Because we're seeing a change of heart. We're seeing a Zacchaeus who used to love taking money from people now seeing that it's wrong and is shifting. We saw the atheist become saved and then pledge abstinence until he got married. Now, was it perfect? By no means was it perfect. There'd be great weeks and then he'd fall and he would stumble, but he would get back up and he would run with Jesus in his sanctification because he knew that in his justification, his past, his present, and his future sins were forgiven. And so now he's able to, even though he takes a few steps and he falls, He's able to get back up and continue running because he knows that on the cross, the wrath of God towards his sin was paid in full. And so when we sin, when we, when we fumble, when we, when we fall short, we're able to get back up knowing that God is not disappointed with us. But we get back up knowing that God is, is wrapping his arms around us and is celebrating the fact that we took steps forward. And that there's more steps to take. He's changing and transforming our hearts, our minds, our souls to become more and more like Jesus, his son. And that is a messy, messy process. It is a messy process. Jesus is the main thing. And if Jesus is the main thing, then that's going to have implications for our lives and our church May we as a church be accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because we've surrounded ourselves with people who need Jesus. May we be so invested in our city that the self-righteous would be confused as to whether we are really a church or not. Guys, I pray that we be scandalous as a church because of our ferocious pursuit of sinners. I pray that we would be risky with our resources pouring out into cultures or communities or areas where sin is running rampant. May we be willing to get our hands and our lives messy by inviting sinners like you and me to our dinner tables. I don't want just our dinner tables to be full of people who validate us because we look holy and pure. I, we need that. We need that encouragement and that edification. 
But I hope that that encouragement and that edification that's coming into each one of us is also increasing a joyful expression that then takes us out of our Christianese and moves us into a domain of darkness that says, this is what I have. This is what God has done. This is who Jesus is. And because in him I have everything I need, when I go into the domain of darkness, there's not going to be anything there that's going to tempt me. There's not going to be anything there that I'm going to look at and want or desire because I know that in Jesus I have all that I need. Therefore, I'm going to go into the domain of darkness because I know those people there, just like I used to be, are searching and longing for satisfaction that they're not finding. And I'm going to introduce them to him. And it's Jesus. Guys, may we, may we look for those opportunities every single week. The, the beauty of our world is that it provides sinners every single day. <laughs> it provides the opportunity for us to express and share what Jesus has done for us in transferring us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son. Snapshot for next week. I'm excited for next week as, as we move into talking about Jesus interacting with a woman at the well and just even just the fact that that happened is a miracle in first century Jerusalem. But Jesus interacting with a woman at the well and what happened to her that led to her sharing her testimony and people coming to Jesus, coming to faith because of her testimony. And we're going to have several people coming up here and sharing testimonies next week of what Jesus has done in their life in hopes that that will motivate, hopes that that will encourage us that a testimony leads to others believing Jesus and who he is and what he offers. I'm excited for that next week and I'm excited to see that begin working itself out on our daily lives as we take what we've experienced in our life with Jesus and we share it with those around us as Zacchaeus has done here. Let's pray. God, we love you. God, we are so humbled that you have entered into the domain of darkness, this world that you entered into it in a humble state and position not to come in on a throne, but to come in in a manger to ultimately not establish a temple for people to come and worship you, but rather to go to a cross for people to kill you. Jesus, you have come and you have earned for us everything that we deserve. God, you 
came and you took our sin. You became sin. You became the identity that we are in order for, for you to give us the identity of who you are. And God, it is only in that that we receive the satisfaction that we're longing for, that we're looking for, that we're searching for so desperately every single day. So Jesus, thank you that you're, you're not just a God who forgives us, but you're a God who sustains us. You're a God who satisfies us. This isn't a begrudging submission that we are giving our lives over to something that's going to be boring and that's going to, um, to just be begrudgingly pushing us forward in life. But rather, you have saved us into a joyful life. An exceedingly joyful life. As you say, I've given them life, life to the fullest, abundant life. And God, we have that because we have Jesus. Jesus is everything that we need. Jesus plus everything is nothing. Jesus plus nothing is everything. Jesus, we ask in this time of reflection that we would that we would sit or that we would stand either way, that we would simply reflect on what you've done in this story of Zacchaeus, that you pursued him and that you gave him the opportunity to receive you fully. And that changed his life. And I'm praying that it changes our lives as well every single day that it changes our life, that, that our lives would be evidenced by the salvation that has come into our hearts and our minds. God, would you be honored? Would you be glorified? And in this time, be lifted up and made much of. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at